Welcome, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast, and I'm Paul Nefer, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation with uh, Bart Fisher, who is with Texas A&M. I'll let him go over uh, what exactly his role is at Texas A&M, but uh, Bart, how are things going down in Texas? Hey, Paul, it's great to be with you. Things are things are going well. It's finally cooling off, and we're uh, in the middle of football season, so one of my favorite times of the year. Now, speaking of football, and I don't want to get uh, in trouble here, but uh, uh, is 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 Jimbo going to make it through the total extent of his contract? I'm I'm just curious on that. That's kind of like asking when we're going to get a farm bill done, Paul. I have no, <laughs> I, I have no idea, but uh, it, after last year, we were all uh, looking forward to putting that in the rearview mirror, and uh, things haven't turned out too too great this season either. So, uh, folks are getting a little restless down here. Uh, you know, talk seven plus million a year. There's a, it comes with some expectations. So. Yeah. Plus the buyout is not, uh, even for Texas, it's not a small buyout. So, uh, but, uh, not so, so what is, uh, well, before we go into your background, what is your current role at, at Texas A&M? Sure. So I run the agricultural and food policy center. I'm co-director alongside Joe Outlaw, who's been here at the university for, for 30 plus years. Uh, so I spend most of my time running running AFPC, but then I also I hold a research appointment here. So I do end up doing a lot of farm policy, risk management uh, sort of research. And then I also have a small teaching appointment. So like most universities, it's never simple. You wear multiple hats, but uh, I had I dabble in a little bit of everything down here. It, it sounds like my multiple hats. You know, I do a podcast. I do a blog. I do a column. I do a consult well sort of consulting i actually prepare some tax returns for my son and myself and so on and so forth so uh, uh, at least I, i'm i'm definitely not getting bored i know that you know exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> well listen so we always like to start off with your background so where did you grow up went to college and and so on sure so I grew up in southwestern Oklahoma. Um, my family has, has been in that part of Oklahoma since about five years prior to statehood, settled by my great great grandfather. So I'm the I'm the fifth generation to grow up there on the farm. Every generation has farmed and ranched there, just uh, outside of Chattanooga, Oklahoma. Our headquarters is between uh, Chattanooga and Frederick, uh, down in the southwestern part of the state. So we raise uh, wheat and cotton, primarily also run run cattle. Uh, I grew up there. Uh, I have not lived there full time since graduating uh, from college, though. I I still stay pretty plugged in, but uh, I've lived uh, off the farm uh, since then. So I, I ended up going to Oklahoma State University for my undergrad. I started out in Ag Econ and then added a couple of others along the way, accounting and finance um, and and finished there. Now, 20, I guess it's been 20 years ago that I finished at, o at Oklahoma State. So did my bachelor's degrees there. Had a really uh, kind of unique opportunity to go overseas to do my master's degree. I wanted to, I wanted to do something completely different. Uh, you know, kind of that that you know, get a perspective that looked at the world you know much different uh, than I did growing up where I did. So I ended uh, went to Cambridge University and studied environmental policy of all things in the Department of Land Economy there, uh, and did my master's at Cambridge and. Uh, from there, I went to D.C. Uh, to work for an organization called the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, the old General Accounting Office, and you know, en enjoyed my time there. Spent four years 
there, but I have an ag background, was still involved in a farming operation. And so I ended up, uh, because of that, you know, because of conflicts uh, of interest, was not able to work on ag. And that did not set well with me. If I wasn't going to be home farming, I, I wanted to be doing something to help farmers and ranchers. And so uh, I left GAO to go back uh, to get my PhD in ag econ. I looked at several schools around the country and ultimately ended up settling on Texas A&M. And uh, I'm back running the Ag and Food Policy Center now, but once upon a time I was a student here uh, in the Policy Center. And so did my PhD in Ag Econ. Uh, you know, several years back uh, before heading back to DC. I guess I did. I, I feel like I've had enough DC at this point, but I guess at that point I hadn't and went back to DC for another eight and a half, year, eight and a half years. So, um, but that's a little bit, a uh, little bit by way of background. Definitely uh, grew up in agriculture, and I'm now raising the sixth generation. And what was what was your role in DC the the last uh, uh, stint, so to speak? Sure. So when I, you know, I was actually down here at A&M doing my PhD when I when I got a call that, uh, you know, the incoming chairman from the House Ag Committee at the time, uh, you know, Frank Lucas, also from Western Oklahoma, also an ag economist, uh, farm kid, had ascended to the chairmanship of the Ag Committee, and I got a call asking if I'd be interested in coming back to DC, and you know that had always been my dream job. I had interned at the Ag Committee as an undergrad. Uh, Never dreamed that uh, my I would get the call to do my dream job, you know, right out of grad, right in the middle of graduate school, uh, quite frankly. And so I ended up leaving after the three-year mark to to move back to D.C. to serve as the chief economist of the House Agriculture Committee under the uh, under Mr. Lucas as chairman. You know, started there in June of 2011. You know, thinking we were going to knock out a farm bill pretty quickly. Uh, you know, a few years later, in 2014, we finally had a farm bill finished, uh, and then you know, uh, Chairman Mike Conaway came in in January of of 15 uh, as the incoming chairman, replacing Mr. Lucas, who had he stepped down because of uh, you know Republicans have ter uh, leadership term limits, so he stepped down, and Mr. Conaway came in as chairman, uh, and I was fortunate to stay on with him as well uh, as the chief economist. Uh, also took over the trade portfolio for several years, uh, served as his trade advisor throughout a few, you know, things folks may have heard of, you know, like the trade war with China and renegotiating NAFTA, all of those fun things uh, were part of my portfolio when I was with the committee. And then throughout the 2018 Farm Bill was also deputy staff director uh, of the committee as well. Uh, and then I ultimately, and after that bill was passed uh, in the summer of 2019, had an opportunity to come back to Texas A&M. And so, uh, we moved the family back down here in August of 2019, and uh, have been here since. Okay, and um, and I'm actually going to go off script a little bit. We do we do a little bit of scripting on this, but uh, uh, but I don't think I'm going to get you in trouble here. So back in the 2014 Farm Bill, uh, you know, ARC agricultural risk coverage and then price loss coverage came into effect, but there was also the ability for farmers at that time to update their base acres if they wanted to. And under the current farm bill debate for the new farm bill, whether that's this year, likely not, but probably next year or the year after, um, you know, there's a big battle going on as to whether base acres should be automatically updated or maybe an election. Uh, since you were part of that process back then, and, and I know you've written on this or at least had discussions on this, what what what's your thoughts as far as that whole debate as to uh, base acres? 
Sure, and I, you know, I, I never mind going off script, Paul, because there's nothing. I mean, look around right now. There's nothing on script when it comes to politics <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. So, uh, I certainly don't mind that. No, yeah, great, great question. You know, very interesting topic. You know, for the for the outside observer, it seems like a very you know straightforward, benign sort of topic. And you know, I often, you know, particularly when I worked on the Hill, you know, my the comments I would get from the countryside, well, you know, this is simple. Why don't y'all go figure this out? Well. There's nothing simple about about base acres, and you you alluded to the debate in 2014. I was at the negotiating table for that bill, and you know one you know one key distinguishing feature here, and I, it is very without getting too far you know way down in the weeds, you know it's important to to distinguish a few different things, and one of those is in 14, we allowed. So one is mandatory versus voluntary. The other is updating versus reallocating, right? And so in 2014, we offered a voluntary reallocation. And That's so yeah. under under a reallocation, you know, there's no new base acres to be had. You know, we're not looking back and saying, hey, let's scrap the system. Your new base acres are going to be an average of what you planted the last five years. And the total base acres could go up or down. You know, this was just a reallocation where your top line number didn't change. It's just that if your cropping mix had changed, you had the option then uh, of updating it and making that making the the blend of your acres more reflective of the crop mix that you had been planning. And all of that was also uh, voluntary. If you fast forward to today, you know one of the the proposals that's being put on the table is a mandatory update, which is, the total number of acres could change and it's coming from you know parts of the country understandably where growers you know they have fewer base acres than they've been planting and their argument is look the safety net needs to be attuned to what i'm what i'm planting and reflective of what i'm planting and i've got a lot of land that doesn't have base acres on it and so you know there's a push for a full-blown base update and then the question is is it mandatory or voluntary mandatory or voluntary and the challenge with voluntary is it gets very expensive, right? If every single producer you know, sort of gets to make a one-sided bet yep. on what works best for them, it's very expensive, right? And so, you know, there's interest in doing kind of a mandatory across-the-board update. The challenge with all of that is that, you know, one, the devil is very much in the details, and, and that's where it can get very complicated very quickly. You know, what time period do you use? What years do you use? You know, for running the, you know, for for running the update and so on and so forth. And probably the biggest challenge of all of that is that when you have members of Congress sitting down at the negotiating table or their staff trying to figure out what to do on this topic, it's sort of a black box. And you would think, well, there's got to be good data, but a lot in a lot of cases, uh, the county office has data, but it's not not all necessarily electronic. And so what ends up happening is you have members of Congress who have to take votes on these things. And so on the surface, there might be an interest in saying, hey, let's do a mandatory base update. But if I can't tell that member who's going to be affected and the degree to which that producer is going to be affected, all of a sudden there's a lot of political risk. And one thing I can guarantee you members of Congress don't like doing is making decisions where they don't really know who's going to be impacted, you know, where the first time they find out you know, who's really impacted is by whoever shows up mad at a town hall meeting, right? And so... Mm -hmm. Yep, they love avoiding that scenario, and so I think you know there's a proposal on the table right now for a mandatory base update. I think it's very, very, very unlikely to happen. Uh, if anything, I think there will be something more in the voluntary space. And if you want, and time permits, you know we can we can dig into that more too. But I think at least 
you know, the 30,000 foot level, the poly, you know, the proposal that's been put in place or that's been offered to, to do a mandatory update. I just don't, I don't really see it going anywhere, to be honest. Well, you know, and I grew up on a wheat farm in Washington state. And, you know, if we look at the wheat base acres and, and you probably know these numbers better than I do, but it seems like, isn't it close to almost 60 million wheat base acres and really the amount of planted wheat acres we've had in the last 10 years have been in that 30, 35 million acre range. And a lot of those wheat acres have probably gone to soybeans, maybe some corn, but soybeans. So if you do a mandatory base update, then you're going to convert those wheat base acres, which historically, at least for the last 10 years, have had a large payment or much, they had more of a chance of having a payment than a soybean has ever had a chance. So, uh, you know, I, I think like you say, who's going to be positively affected by this and who's going to be negatively affected by that? Do I have those numbers about right, Bart? Yeah, that's in the ballpark. You know, I mean, you're looking at soybeans as probably 30 million acres underbased, right? And wheat, where we closed the gap a little bit in 14 with a voluntary reallocation, you know, some of those wheat acres were reallocated away, some to beans uh, and certainly some to corn as well. And so there was a bit of a rebalancing, but you're, you're exactly right. You still have uh, you still have that gap. And I mean, I think that's part of what's driving some of this. There's this notion that, well, we could shift away from these wheat acres that have historically had more support. And by, you know, if we pick up more soybean acres, at least in the near term, you know, the support associated with soybeans on a per acre basis is lower. So maybe this could actually generate savings that we that we could use elsewhere. And so that's part of the motivation, I think, for for re-examining this. I think the pro the problem is it's the black box nature of this. It's okay. Well, not every grower is going to benefit. Well, tell me you know, which growers aren't. And I can't yeah. tell you which growers aren't going to, right? It's all very much anecdotal, which makes it very hard to legislate. And so I think if you, you know, a, a, another way to look at this too, Paul, or for, for your listeners, something to keep in the back of their mind, you know, the, the 18 farm bill had a provision that a lot of that wheat base, particularly in the plains, you know, has gone back to grass. And so there was a provision in the 18 farm bill that said, hey, if you had, if your base acres, if all the base on the farm had been planted to grass, I think the time frame we used was 09 to 17, then it wasn't going to be eligible for ARC PLC. So in some respects, that was an update. It, it was an update on one side of the ledger, right, where if you hadn't been planning, uh, those acres are out. So in the case of a farm that's overbased relative to their plantings, those acres then were set aside. I think one thing you know we could see potentially in this bill, I know there's some interest is, well, what on the other side of the ledger? What about that grower that, you know, they've got a farm that doesn't have any base on it. One thing we've been toying with is the idea, you know, could we offer some, rather than this full-blown base update where there's just so much political risk, could there be some targeted opportunities to add base in cases where we don't have base on the farm? And so I think you could see, potentially see something like that, but that comes back to the broader conversation of whether, you know, is there going to be new money in this farm bill? You know, where's the money going to come from, some, from some of the, for some of these other Title I improvements that uh, that Congress is considering? Would, would that be a permanent base or would that sort of be a temporary base? No, I mean, I think you, you know, and certainly that's up to Congress's discretion. You know, typically if they're going to do something on base, they leave it in place long term, uh, mainly for the baseline effect. And so there, you know, folks have been toying in this farm bill, you know, hey, we need, we see a need for, uh, you know, changing base or improving base. We see a need for increasing reference prices. You know, we don't have a budget. Let's just do it short term. 
Yeah, I, I caution heavily against that one because, again, without going way off the deep end here, with respect to a farm bill budget, if you don't want to do something long term, you have to turn it off a year early. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, the Congressional Budget Office essentially requires you to pay for it for the entire 10 year budget window. And so you start playing some of those budget games. You get into a scenario like the 08 Farm Bill, for example, where the SURE program, it ended a year before the, the 08 Farm Bill expired, you know, including all the livestock disaster programs. Why? Well, because they didn't want to pay for it in the last year and then the, the five years that followed. Well, that may that may help you plus things up you know in the first four years of a farm bill but then when you get to the next farm bill it leaves you with absolutely no budget and so i've heard some talk about well let's just focus on the first few years of this bill and you know i would argue in this political environment that more or less you know it leaves you in a terrible spot going into the 2028 or 2029 farm bill and so i think anything that's done is probably going to be a, done with an eye towards making it you know a, at least having it funded uh, having funding in perpetuity. Okay, okay. Um, we'll 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 have a, a discussion after our sponsor break on on reference prices because that's sort of near and dear to my heart a little bit. Uh, but uh, you mentioned that you do some teaching. So what what type of teaching do you do at at Texas A and M? Sure. So I I we have a course here, the uh, agricultural and food policy. It's an under upper upper level undergraduate course that's required in our department for every single student coming through Ag Econ at Texas A and M. Uh, and I teach the spring version of that course. My counterpart, uh, uh, Dr. Outlaw, teaches in the fall. Uh, I teach the spring course to about 190 undergraduate students, and so we cover everything from the you know the history of farm bills. Uh, to everything going on right now in food and nutrition policy and including on SNAP, we dabble in international trade policy and of course a heavy dose of politics along the way too. And so I do that every spring, a pretty major commitment uh, teaching uh, 190 to 200 students every semester, but I've got a lot of good help here. Uh, and so I, I started doing that uh, two years ago. Figure if you're going to be a college professor, you got to at least be you got to be teaching. And so uh, <laughs> jumped jumped at the opportunity to get in the classroom, uh, particularly you know, you know, we have a lot of students who have no ag background. And so like I did when I worked in D.C., you know, to me, that's not a threat. It's an extraordinary opportunity to be able to engage with folks who, who don't necessarily have ag backgrounds, but who have interest in the topic. And so uh, every spring I spend a few months uh, in the classroom. Well, good, good. Uh Actually, uh, I'd be very interested in attending that class, but I'm sure you don't do it virtually and I probably don't qualify. So <laughs> I, I think a guest lecture sounds great, Paul. So. Well, I, we could do that sometime uh, uh, in my spare time. So come uh, down and talk about the practical part of it. So, uh, yeah. uh, but, uh, well, let's go ahead and take a, a break for a sponsored message and then we're going to come back and talk about uh, reference prices and a few other things. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi a Blue Diamond Farming Company in Jessup, Iowa, know Robo Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers 
and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance. RoboAgar Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, RoboAgar Finance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. I'm Paul Meefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Bart Fisher from Texas A&M. Um, so, you know, the, Bart, there's been this huge debate on reference prices. You know, we're trying to increase them. But if we go back to the original 14 uh, Farm Bill, when reference prices, at least for ARC and PLC, were put into place, they were fixed for the term of that Farm Bill. But then starting with the 18 farm bill, we have what's called the effective reference price, which allows those prices to maybe trend up if, you know, pricing goes up, which it's happened the last few years. Now, at that point in time, there was two or three very minor crops like chickpeas, I think lentils, uh, maybe one other small crop actually effectively had an increase, but it's capped at 115%. And based on my analysis of where prices are right now, at least for corn and soybeans and wheat, over the next three or four years, you're going to have an automatic increase, maybe not up to that 115%, uh, but that's going to happen. But a lot of these other crops are not going to get that bump. So let's have a discussion, you know, that effective reference price, does it help? Does it hurt? Do we need to increase reference prices? Uh, I'm just going to leave it wide open for you to 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 go go over that topic. Sure. Well, no, that's it's a great uh, great question, Paul. Great conversation. Um, you know, particularly for those of us who are farm policy nerds, right? This is the this is the heart of the issue. And so, you know, I and and I think it's appropriate that you mentioned 2014 because you know prior to that we had the old counter cyclical program, but you also had the direct payment nested inside of that. And so in 2014. With the advent of, of PLC, the reference prices were all established anew. And uh, I was actually on the committee at the time. Uh, a lot of those reference prices kind of originated from work that I had done uh, there at the committee. And it was really over kind of a two to three year period. And, you know, you fast forward to now, and granted, this has moderated a little bit over the last year, but a lot of the, the, the chatter has been, you know, the reference prices need to be updated because of this, you know, unforeseen explosion in cost of production. Uh, that resulted from you know COVID-19 and all the supply chain disruptions. Well, interestingly enough, if you go back to 14, uh, you know those reference prices were established with cost of production in mind. Uh, you know, arguably the point of Title One, which really is it's designed to work in tandem with crop insurance, right? Crop insurance is the cornerstone of the farm safety net. But if you've got cost of, if you've got uh, you know market prices below cost of production and you're insuring a percentage of that. You know, you're you're far below break even. And so the, the whole point of Title One is to step in when those market prices fall. And so for us at the time back in 2014, we wanted to make sure that those reference prices were attuned uh, to cost of production. And so I worked very closely then with the Ag and Food Policy Center, you know, the outfit that I'm now running uh, down here. You know, we maintain what are called representative farms all over the country. And I'm guessing some of your listeners, you know, are either serve on panels with us or have in the past. You know, several hundred producers from 30 different states on 94 of those operations are maintained around the country. And that's the that, that's the basis that we use for helping, you know, narrow down 
uh, cost of production. So, you know, we relied on that heavily back in 2012 and 13 when the prices were being established for 14. And then, as you mentioned in the lead in here, Paul, in, in, in 18, uh, you know, there was no new money in that bill. We were in the midst of a recession, but, you know, the thing catching most of the attention was the trade war. And you had the secretary at the time, you know, who they stepped in with MFP uh, and provided assistance in response to, you know, the retaliatory tariffs from China. And so there just wasn't much of a groundswell for, you know, any changes in the 20 in the 2018 farm bill. And so those statutory reference prices changed the same, you know, stayed the same. Uh, but one of the things that we you know, looked at in that bill is that we were we knew we were not putting any new money in the bill. Uh, we also knew that when we climbed out of the doldrums at that, you know, you know, going forward, that those reference prices were static. And so, you know, we it was actually our office that came up with the concept of effective reference prices. Uh, and it was it was largely to make sure that the safety net, you know, could sort of keep up. Now, granted, that was driven off of market prices. It was not driven off a cost of production. And so, you know, you see pretty much uniformly across the board, all all crops facing cost pressure, but not necessarily facing, you know, you know, seeing the exact same opportunity on the price side. And so you what what we saw, as you noted, was, you know, the market prices uh, climbed, you know, certainly more so for some crops than others. And the reference prices then were able to piggyback off of that and climb, you know, climb right along with them. And certainly part of that was subject to negotiation. For example, I get a lot of questions of, well, why can they only go up 15 percent? You know, the cap on the effective reference price is 115 percent of the statutory reference price. That was entirely budget driven. It was entirely you know, driven by negotiations, primarily you know, with the Senate. You know, we originated the idea. Uh, and and certainly got some pushback, and so you know there were budget constraints. The you know the other constraint is that that effective reference price. It looks at the five-year Olympic average. USDA it wasn't our intent, but USDA delayed it by a year, and so it lags a year. Um, but it's a five-year Olympic average, and then it's eighty-five percent of that. And so your two biggest dials on the effectiveness of the of the effective reference prices are that eighty-five percent of the five-year Olympic average, and then also that 115% budget cap. And so I think in this farm bill, you know, the biggest debate we're seeing right now is, well, do you change the effect, you, do you change the statutory reference price? Do you change the Olympic average calculation? Do you change that budget calculation? Do you do some of all of them? And I think all of those are fair game. I think I know, you know, from all the work we're doing for Congress, I know that they're looking at, a, at, at all of those. Uh, as a as a dial, and at the end of the day, it's all subject to negotiation and kind of the art of uh, of the possible and running you know the political gauntlet in D.C. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I sort of did a, a spreadsheet on this based on the CBO estimates. Now we know those are not not going to be accurate; they're an estimate. Uh, but I went through like on corn, the maximum under the 18 Farm Bill, the maximum it could go to is 426 and for 2025 and 2026 and even 2027, I'm sort of estimating now again, the interplay of whether the price would go up or not is is you know all arbitrary, but to be in that 446, 447 period. So potentially there's maybe 20 cents that's not available because of that hard cap at 115%. Now over on the soybean side, I think it's similar if I look, take a quick look at that. Uh, uh, soybean, going 
hits 1050 by 2026 and so yeah, i had i had 1052 and the max is 966 so you're losing almost a buck there and then on wheat i don't think it's quite as high on wheat as it is dramatic i don't think and it doesn't get to the 115 percent well it comes up to 708 versus 633 so percentage wise that's probably not too far off so uh, uh but do you have a do you have an idea what which way you think they might be leaning? Of course, that's that's uh, who knows. But uh, I'm just sort of curious if you've heard any way they might be leaning one way or another. Well, one you know one caution I would give kind of your your listeners to in thinking through all of this is that you know these effective reference prices it certainly means you know and which and I think there's all sorts of I don't know if we'll have time today maybe. Maybe that'll be a future podcast, you know, looking, digging into the future of ARC. But, you know, interestingly enough, like you, you take the examples that you gave, at least in the near term, the support levels are considerably more, you know, robust for those crops you mentioned, particularly corn, beans, wheat, uh, sorghum, you know, uh, as well. And then a few of the other minor oil seeds and pulses are, you know, benefit from this too. But the challenge is, that they also come down. And so you got to yep. think, you know, I look at, I, I very much look at title one through the, through the lens of not which is going to pay more. It is, you know, or how, how do we make these things pay more? It is which one offers the most safety net protection. And my, my concern focusing just on the effective reference price is that they can come back down. Right. And so I think it's a matter of finding a balance between the two. It And, and my bias is probably much more to, to focusing on, uh, on the statutory reference price, because it's not how much, how can I eke out more payments in the next three years? It is if the world falls apart, what's going to happen? And if the world yeah. does fall apart, and you know there are plenty of indicators on the horizon that prices could be coming down. My question is, if they come down, what happens? Well, what happens is you fall all the way back down to the statutory reference price. And so to me, it's a mistake to adjust the reference, you know, the effective reference price or the budget cap at the exclusion, you know, I think you could do a combination of both. And again, all of this is art. I mean, it, it, I would be, I would be uh, misleading your readers if I sat here and suggested that, you know, we run all of these numbers and Congress runs these numbers and, you know, that it's pure math that, that decides where these things are set. No, it's all subject to negotiation, right? And, 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 and political balance and all of that. And so, I mean, it could be a combination of, of effective reference prices and statutory, but my caution, I, I very strongly caution against just focusing on the effective reference price because that might help eke out more payments in the near term. But again, right now, it's not really about making payments right now. It is about making sure it works if, you know, the bottom falls out of the market. Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of eerie how similar the prices are now compared to 2014. You know, as far as if you look at the benchmark price for ARC, it's within I think on corn, it's I think in two years, because again, because of the 18 Farm Bill, we now have that year lag on these prices. Um, you know, it's within like a dime or 12 cents and on corn and so, I mean, on wheat and soybeans within like six cents. So, and we all know what happened in 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And that's what we don't want to have happen in 24, 25, 26, 27, is we go back to, you know, very low prices without really any relief in title one and we i will tell you we've done some of that analysis for the senate and for you know the 
the the ranking member on the Senate Ag Committee, you know, Senator Bozeman. We've done so, some of that that work, and I will tell you, it's not a pretty. If you follow the same price path that we did following passage of the 14 Farm Bill, uh, and you look at how the safety net would perform right now, absent any improvements to the reference prices, it does not paint a very pretty picture uh, going forward. And so, and and that's the exact scenario, you know, that uh, I know a lot of policymakers are, you know. That's what they're interested in is how will the safety net perform if we get to that point and the answer is absent changes it's not going to perform very well and i i think too you know i i think it was i i i appreciate your comparison of the two times you know or the two time periods right and that you had t you had teased that out because it is sort of eerily similar the one thing that's not uh, uh similar is where you know cost of production is relative yep. to that time right we've seen this explosion so you know the difference now and then is that you know margins are squeezed even tighter, which to me makes it all the more important that we get you know Title One right. And I, I get tired of hearing it. You know that well we've got crop insurance, we don't need Title One, and 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 often that devolves into a regional debate too. Of, you know there's commodities, and certainly if you are a commodity where you're producing a small share of global production and you're responsible for a small share of global exports, there's no question you know, you gravitate more to things like PLC and understand, you know, you're much more attuned to the price risk that's out there. But increasingly, uh, you know, even for other crops where, you know, we've dominated global production and dominated global exports, to me, it it highlights the importance. Even if you don't feel the need for Title One acutely right now, when you start to see signs like, you know, Brazil displacing the U.S. as the number one exporter of corn, you start to see some of those signals. It's just yet a, a, another reminder, you know, to me of of why we do what we do, why we have Title One to supplement crop insurance, because, uh, and particularly where you know we're up against in a lot of these cases, it, it's fine to say, you know, we'll let the market work its will, but in in a number of cases, you know. The market working its will is against the backdrop of multiple other countries uh, with with their governments having a huge bearing on where that market in the direction that that market is headed. And so I, I continue to believe Title One is you know an incredibly important tool for leveling the playing field and providing some sort of counter cyclical balance to crop insurance. Well, we got to remember if prices are low, crop insurance doesn't cover your cost of production. I mean, exactly. it. it, it it might cover 70%, you know, if the if the price of corn for crop insurance is suddenly at $4 and 85% of that is what 340, believe me your cost of production is going to be a buck or about 50 higher than that most and, likely. And to that very point, you know, I you know, I I don't have the luxury of I mean it it's fine to say, you know, for example, CBO right now, if you look a couple of years out, that's where their midpoint on corn is is at 405, right? Yep. And I've yep. got plenty of people who tell me, well, they've lost their minds. That's not happening. Well, I don't have the luxury of assuming that, right? I mean, if you work in policy, our goal here is to say, if it if that does materialize, what sort of position does that leave you in? And you know, absent in improvements to the reference prices, it leaves you in the situation you just described, you know, where things are inverted and your cost of production is significantly above. And on that point about crop insurance, if you are at 405 per bushel, even if you've got 85% coverage, you know, you're looking at 350 that, you know, $3.50 a bushel that you're insuring, right? I mean, a tremendous amount of exposure. And you might close the gap a little bit, 
either with SCO or ECO or a combination of both of those on insurance, but still you've got a tremendous amount of exposure. And so I, that's why I tell growers, even if right now you may not be feeling, you know, you know, title ones out of sight, out of mind, which is why I think it's also sort of quiet right now, right? You know, the co cost did moderate a little bit. Prices haven't fallen, uh, you know, precipitously. And so right now there's not acute pressure, but we're not passing a farm bill for now. You know, we're passing, you know, we're writing a farm bill in anticipation of five years from now, you know, one, both to address whatever may or may not come at the time and then to be prepared, you know, to lay the groundwork for the following, you know, that following farm bill. And so, you know, and, and the beauty is right now uh, is that, you know, if prices don't come down, then, you know, it comes in under budget and farm policy is yet again another success story where we ended up not spending what was anticipated, right, it, which is which is also fine. Uh, it's how it's designed to work, right? If if the market does better than anticipated, the support turns off, and that's a hallmark of farm policy today versus, you know, the multiple decades uh, that that followed prior to the turn of the century. It's we spend nothing if the market uh, stays strong. Yeah, you know, as a farmer, and I guess I call myself a farmer. I got a farmland farm in three states now that. I don't want to collect ARC or PLC because that means my price is much lower than I was hoping for it to be. So uh, you're right that Title One is there sort of as a safety net uh, to help uh, mitigate that uh, that chance of it going too far down. Absolutely. I, I, one other topic, and then I'll I'll close with my three or four questions I always ask. Um, you know, Senator Grassley and Senator Brown, oh, about a month or two ago, had this act that they came out with saying, you know, they want to treat general partnerships just like LLCs and corporations where it would sort of be, um, well, actually there would be a maximum of two payment limits, you know, those would have one payment. You know, the intent is, you know, as, as Senator Grassley said many times, you know, payments should only go to farmers with dirt under their fingernails. Um, is there a chance of any of that coming into a farm bill? Oh man, uh, you know, we could do we could do an hour on this topic alone, Paul. You know, I, and actually, I, I, several of us who work in this space have an article, uh, hopefully coming out this fall, that I can put on your radar if and when it's published. But you know, I actually, you know, I don't know what the chances of it are. Um, you know, but I argue, you know, I, I actually take almost the exact opposite view. I think you know, you have we all lament you know, this migration out of rural America. We lament the average age of the farmer. We lament how big farms have gotten. And, you know, in part of it, you take my work, part of the world, for example, where we live here, you know, you take an 800,000 to million dollar cotton stripper uh, and you try to farm on a few hundred acres, you can't make it work, right? So, I mean, no. economies of size are, are driving the conversation. You know, where farms have gotten larger and they've gotten larger too because you know folks migrate away from the farm you know there's you know they can you know it's the luxury we have in this country you know people can go be college professors or doctors lawyers it's a point you know that secretary vilsack has made in hearings before you know before congress but it also means that those left farming you know get bigger for a multitude of reasons and and the frustration i have then is that we know that dynamic is at play we know the extraordinary risk that they're taking on themselves. And then our solution, you know, is, well, we ratchet down on multiple levels, making it incredibly difficult for them to access the farm safety net. 
And that's just on Title One. And you have others who propose that, well, we need a payment limit crop insurance, too. I mean, if you want to decimate rural America, that would be a good way to get started. And so I actually take probably the opposite view is that these efforts to limit the safety net, to make it harder and harder to access the safety net, just exacerbates the problem of outward migration and of, of farm consolidation. Because the only people who can survive are those who, you know, who don't need to rely on the payment limit and are big enough you know, to to put it behind, you know, put it behind them. And, you know, some of these things, one of the proposals, you know, on on entities to further limit, one of the hallmarks right now is that, you know, if you know, your accountant puts you in an LLC, for example, and we know this all across the country, uh, that, you know, for, for if nothing else, for liability protection, we're going to put the farm uh, in an LLC. Well, then suddenly that LLC is limited to one payment yep. limit even yep. if you're a couple yep. farming in it. And so I I I'm almost I take almost the exact and it's certainly no, you know, disrespect to, you know, to the the titans uh uh in Congress, you know, who've long championed these issues, but I argue, you know, that they're the, that some of these things are actually they're exacerbating the problem rather than mitigating it. And frankly, we needed to be moving in the opposite direction. I, I totally agree. To me, it should just be based on your social security number. Doesn't care what type of entity, you just based on the social security number. They already know that, and they, you know, they go it down to the fourth level. Um, you know, if if that bill went through, what we would have happen is you'd have all these quote larger entities breaking up and you'd have let's say there's 10 family members, they each would have their own Schedule F. That means there's seven or eight more farms that the local FSA office has to deal with that they can't handle right now because they're understaffed. So I, I don't think they understand the law of unintended consequences on you, these bills. You you nailed it, Paul, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, let's go with uh, our, our, like you say, we could uh, probably go for two or three hours, but uh, I try to keep this to about 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, who was your uh, mentor in this uh, in this career of yours? You know, I I have been uh, blessed in that I've had several. Um, you know, and to, to keep it brief, you know, one I I love production agriculture. If I wasn't doing this very unique job, you know, I, I get to focus my days on farm level impacts of policy. If I weren't doing that, I'd be home farming because I love I love production ag. My dad still farms full time, so certainly my love of production agriculture came from my dad. Uh, he's an incredible farmer, very enterprising, and has been very successful at it and is still my, you know, my go-to. And so he's certainly one, uh, you know, related my mother as well. I was blessed to grow up with a, you know, father and mother who were, you know, very much, uh, you know, focused on, on, on us and, and training us upright. And one, you know, from my mother, you know, she was diagnosed with cancer when I was a young kid, you know, way back in the day where, where even less was known about it then. And so, you know, watching her kind of persist through four years of that had a huge impact on me as a as a young kid, right? And so, you know, all the challenges I face, I always think back to my mother and everything that she's gone through and dealt with in her life. And so I, you know, two of my earliest mentors were my parents, and I'm very grateful for them. You know, very quickly, you know, Oklahoma State, I had never worked in an office a day in my life when I went to OSU. I, you know, my office was a tractor. And so, I uh, worked for Demona Doy, Dr. Demona Doy. She's now the state extension director, but was the farm finance expert uh, at OSU for years. I worked for her for all five years of my undergrad and it was just an incredible experience. I can't imagine the patience it took to put up with a farm kid, <laughs> farm kid like me, uh, but I learned a tremendous amount from her on the finance side of agriculture. You know, 
Joe and, you know, Joe Outlaw, James Richardson here at the Policy Center, they were my co-chairs of my PhD. They were certainly big mentors of mine. And then was very blessed to work for two chairmen in, in Congress, you know, Frank Lucas, Mike Conaway, both of them sort of, you know, took me, took me under their wing, gave me tremendous opportunity to have a huge impact on policy uh, nationwide. And so I count, you know, count them as mentors as well. And so I've got a lot, I, I've got a lot of mentors. You know, I'm a, a firm believer. You can prepare all you want, you know, and you can be as smart as you want, but it's the people you encounter in life that, you know, really open doors and provide opportunities. And that's certainly, uh, you know, certainly been the case for me. Yep. And uh, do you have any hobbies? You know, there's a few, there's a, a, a little bit of time here and there. <laughs> I, you know, I've got three little kids uh, from ranging from a little girl who's four up to, I've got two boys, the oldest of whom who, who's 10. So a lot of my hobbies are chasing them around, uh, playing baseball and soccer and uh, everything going on with school. So my, my spare time is, is spending mu as much time with them as I possibly can. And Part of our motivation for moving back to A&M as well is we're about a five-hour drive from the farm, which is still uh, a, a long way, but I don't have to get on an airplane to fly from D.C. to get to the farm now, so we can load up in the, the pickup and head head up to the farm for the weekends, and and so we're, uh, you know, any other spare time, I try to get to Oklahoma as much as I can. As I mentioned at the top, I've, I'm raising the sixth generation on our operation, and, you know, for me, it's important if they want to be uh, involved in production ag, I want to give them as much exposure to it as I can. And so we we spend quite a bit of time up there at the farm uh, trying trying to help out. So. Yeah. Well, if your oldest is 10, you're still a fairly smart person, but give it about three or four years <laughs> and, and your IQ will probably drop fairly rapidly. Trying to indoctrinate as much as I can now So well, <laughs> while they're still time. <laughs> and uh, is there anything that keeps you up at night? No, not really. Uh, I, I sleep pretty well. Part, in part, you know, one of the a project I'm working on right now, before I left the Hill, you know, the Ag Committee, House Ag Committee uh, celebrated its 200th anniversary in 2020. And we were, I was asked to kind of spearhead the writing of, uh, of, a, of a book commemorating all 200 years. And I'm, I'm working on that with Ann Eflin, who retired from USDA, and then also David Ernst, as a historian here in, in, in our shop. And just thinking back through this, you know, we've we've been writing this book for four years now encountering pretty much everything you know any major issue we've dealt with in agriculture and i think one way one way not to be overcome by the events going on and certainly there's no short i mean from ukraine to israel to you know the speaker you know mess that's going through dc right now you know it, it seemingly there's no shortage of reasons to uh you know to be you know to be worried and concerned about the direction things are going until you look back you know to history and you realize that we've come through we've come through so many things in this country and that you know the certainly the stuff we're dealing with you know it, it's messy uh it's and it is frightening and it's frustrating because some of it is self-imposed but you know what we'll we'll find our way through it and so i i usually err on the side of optimism um and despite all of its words, I still think we're blessed to live in the best country uh, on earth, but uh, it is certainly a little bumpy along the way. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. And then uh, finally, what's your definition of success in farming? Oh man, um, that's a good one. I Well, first, I think it's very important that, you know, that 
that definition is different for every single person, right? And so I wouldn't want anyone listening to hear my definition try to impose it for them because it, you know, agriculture, that's one of the beautiful things about agriculture in this country is extraordinarily diverse. Uh, and it, it's literally different everywhere you go. And I've never seen two farms that are the same, which is why, I mean, frankly, that's one thing that makes working in policy so hard, right? Because you're trying to establish policy that will work for everyone. It's one of the beauties of crop insurance, right? Because you're able to attune it, you know, to your individual operation and, and to your county. And so th that that diversity makes it very, you know, very, very challenging. And it's, and it's hard to, you know, there is no standardized definition. I will say for me, it is making sure, you know, that uh, our farm survives to a sixth generation and that, you know, my dad, I, who I'm sure he would love if I was home farming right beside him and there are days I would love nothing more than that, but never, never once has he pressured me to come back home and farm, right? He, he wanted me to go, you know, he wanted me to go wherever God was leading me to go. Uh, in my life, I had an opportunity to work on behalf of farmers and have taken advantage uh, of that. And so, but I did have the op, uh, the opportunity, and I am pretty pretty heavily involved uh, at home. It just doesn't look like it does for my dad, right? My involvement yeah. looks different than my dad's involvement. And frankly, I want the same for my kids, you know, both boys and and my daughter. I want them if they want to be able, if they want to be involved in ag, I want I want the farm to be there for them to be able to carry on. Uh, if that's what they're interested in. But I ultimately want, I want them to have an appreciation for ag, but I ultimately want it to be their decision as to whether they're involved going forward or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, good, good. Uh, anything else you'd like to add, Bart, before we sign off? I've enjoyed it, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate all of I, I've called on you a lot over the years with a, with a lot of random questions, and you've always been an incredible resource. And so uh, I, I just appreciate the opportunity to get on and chat with you today, and I've really enjoyed it. Yep, same here, same here. Well, again, this is the Top Producer Podcast, and this is uh, Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. Uh -huh.